What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Today's episode is named The Tale of Two Errands. Coincidentally, both women I interviewed are named Aaron. I wasn't trying to be confusing, but it just happened that way. The first Aaron I speak to is from Australia. The second Aaron I'll be talking to is from the UK. So we have Aaron from Australia and Aaron from the UK. I have never given any sort of warning before, never said that this episode's going to be graphic or is going to contain details that you may or may not want to hear. I actually feel the need to say this on this episode that there are some topics that we cover that are extremely troubling. The first episode, we are going to be talking a little bit about child pornography, but I try to keep the conversation focused on Erin and how she dealt with it and the impacts of it. The second conversation is a little bit more graphic, and I just want to give a little bit of forewarning on that one. These are two interviews that were probably some of the hardest ones to talk about They are remotely related, and people can understand two different types of trauma that people can go through. Hello. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, What were you? You work in a call center? Yeah, uh, sort of, yeah, but it's a call center from home, so it's an online call center. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. The the reason I contacted you was I was so moved and impressed with how you conducted uh, the conversations with those two women who were raped. Mm-hmm. They, those st- stories were horrible, but I felt like they really brought attention to an issue that not many people are willing to or even want to discuss. Yeah. And I spoke to a few people about it and they said well what happened to you is kind of unique it's kind of interesting when they hear about it but interesting in the sense that um it's when people think ptsd they don't often think about um these sorts of things they 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 always associate it with war or some sort of violent thing really violent things um so i thought well I, I really liked I, I really enjoy how you and Aaron um, discuss these topics. I feel like you uh, bring a lot of um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm tired. <laughs> S- sensitivity or something? <laughs> sensitivity, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's not a form of grotesque entertainment. It's yeah. more let's discuss this logically mm-hmm. and from a perspective of interest, not let's be gory for the sake of being gory or. Um, disturbing because the thing with true crime is is you can find i believe you can find it interesting but entertaining that's where i draw the line exactly it's real cases real people yeah 
there, there's always an aspect of, yeah, you're interested, so it's somewhat entertainment, but to just look yeah. at it for entertainment, like, oh, who's the next victim? Who's the next person? Yeah. Like, it's just not that way. And, and thank you for that compliment. It's probably the best compliment you could give me because that's what Aaron and I really strive to do. And yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's, I know I laugh. I know I, I'm a upbeat person and sometimes people take that out of context, but for the most part, I feel like we deliver exactly that. It's, this is our interest. This is our, our passion. And it has nothing yeah. to do with, you know, the gore. And, um, that's cool. That's cool. I was actually worried you wouldn't be able to understand what I'm saying because of my, uh, weird Aussie accent. <laughs> well, uh, I was, I just interviewed, uh, a woman named Natalia who had a very thick British accent and it took took me about five minutes before I I got the groove. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. Um, I actually get told a lot. I I sound more German than, um, Australian and, or British sometimes. So, I never really know what I sound like until people actually ask, are you actually from Australia? And I'm like, yeah, I've, been, I've lived here my whole life. And Just being my, you know, naive American self, I think you sound more British, not German at all. So a lot of similarities between British and Australian, though. And uh... About the Aussie accent is because we're descendants from convicts, our accent developed because the convicts were perpetually drunk. So our accent is actually drunk British accent. I love that. It's true. It's a true story. That's why we sound a little bit uh, cockney, but also there's a bit of a twang to our accent. So, all right. So when you initially wrote to me, you, you talked about an incident that you had at work. Yes. And we're, uh, you don't have to talk too much about your job or anything, but how did this come about? I dropped out of high school at uh, year 11, so I had one more year to go, which is uh, year 12. I decided not to do that, and I decided to look for work, and I managed to find a job that was a good um, chance for work experience. Uh, It was a reception job. Um, It was um, my first job, and I was really excited about it, but uh, the place I worked at was a trading company, which um, basically it's called Barter Card. And what it is, is you trade certain products um, and uh, things like that for other products. So if you have a tire, a set of tires or something, you could trade those tires for something else you might need, like uh, seatbelts or a book or something of an equal or lesser value and you connect people with those. So I was doing a bit of marketing and uh, advertising and I was working for a small office. There were only four of us in there. Uh, I was doing their reception and marketing as promotional type materials. So it would be quite commonplace for me to be editing uh, pictures and um, for advertisements for flyers and things like that, that people wanted to trade certain things. I remember when this happened, I got um, an email from my boss who Oddly at the time, uh, though now I look back on it, it makes sense, uh, he, had been, he hadn't been to work all week. And he sends me an email saying, hi, Aaron, um, I want you to put together an advertisement for the self-help book I've written. He, he was an, a like, motivational speaker on the side. 
I want you to do a advertisement for it. Um, you'll find the pictures of my self-help book um, on my computer. But if you can't find them, don't worry about it. Just let me know and I'll uh, email you through a few pictures. And that was quite commonplace. Um, so I would um, often go on his computer. I knew his login details to get the pictures that he required. And so I didn't think anything of it. And I went over to his computer. I logged in and... I couldn't find the pictures of this book. I looked everywhere in his computer, on his desktop. I um, did a search for the files and I just couldn't find it. And for some reason, just before I was about to get up and give up, I thought, uh, I'll check the sample pictures file because the sample pictures file, I, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but um, they have like stock pictures, but you can still put you know, your own files in there. Yeah. But the thing that was weird about his um, sample pictures folder was um, there were no stock pictures to prove that there were folders in pictures in there. Instead, there were like just pictures of um, people. I couldn't see them very well because they were only little uh, thumbnails at this point. So I thought maybe he put them in there. I don't know. So I opened it up and there were two subfolders and they weren't given names. But again, I could see that there were little pictures in there, again, of people. So I'm like, okay, I'll click again. And I found pictures of people, but not very, not the sort of pictures um, one should find. It was um, child pornography. And um, I stumbled across it in the middle of the day people were in the office and what was frustrating was the pictures came up really big on um, my boss's computer screen so my first instinct is oh my god I don't want to get caught with this I don't want people to think this is mine so I'm um, clicking x and um, you can't see me but I'm actually making the motions um, to my computer I'm like clicking to get out get out get out I then was stunned because I was like I what did I just see, even though I knew what I saw? And so I went home and slept on it because I, I was thinking to myself, maybe it was art. Like, maybe it was some sort of weird art that, like, photography or something like that. You're, so you're, it I, sounds I, like you're yeah. trying to find any excuse to give an explanation besides <sighs> what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I was sort of like, okay, I'll, um, I'll think about it and I, I wanted to give my boss the benefit of the doubt because he had been pretty nice to me and I wanted to make sure that I had given him at least a chance I didn't want because I didn't really know what to do. So what I did was I went home, I slept on it and then the next morning I came in before anyone else went straight to his computer and had another look, a more detailed look and it was definitely child porn. It was There was no... Um, debate of what it was it was just child pornography i look back on it now and realize that's the first time i actually saw pornography um i had never i was actually pretty well behaved growing up i didn't look at um porn didn't have internet access at home so couldn't access it easily and just wasn't really into it i I obeyed the laws. It's 18 plus here to look at adult sites. So I knew that I wasn't supposed to do that stuff. But yeah, that was my first ever experience of um, pornography. And um, it's 
something that at the time I thought was really bad, but um, didn't realize how damaging seeing it would be. And that's uh, technically it's it's not even uh, a lot of people would say that's not pornography. That's a crime. That's a, you know, an abuse that you witness, not, Mm -hmm. you know, not anything associated with the adult industry. But, yeah, it's a double it's it's a double whammy for you, because if you just saw a regular video of, Mm. you know, pornography, that would probably be shocking and unsettling enough. But then to see that is a whole. Yeah. The thing is, when I was, um, before this incident, if I ever read like a newspaper article about child abuse imagery or uh, police found um, abuse images of children or um, child pornography on someone's computer, if there was a report on that, I would think at the time, I, I would have thought that meant like kids in bikinis or like girls in bikinis or kids in their underwear or something innocent but when i actually was confronted with those images it's a lot worse than what people think it's it is abuse but at the same time it's scarily real and definitely sexualized yeah yeah i've somehow even though i i've been to some very questionable sites over my life i've never come across that and knock on wood thank god because i never Mm. would want to see it i never would want to come across that i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy um because it's confronting what i saw i wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt because it was so horrible i wanted to give my boss um every chance to not be um into that if that makes sense like i wanted i was making excuses for him but now I look back on it and go, it. I, I knew deep down what it was straight away, but I needed to confirm it for myself before I did anything about it. So what was your next step here? What did you do? Here's where it got a bit tricky. Um, my boss had been away for a week and he had said he was going on a trip down the South Coast. See, um, I live in Sydney and he said he was going down to... Kayama and Kayama is like maybe 50 k's down the south near the beaches and he would do that quite regularly he said that he would be back the following week but don't contact him so we were like okay all right we won't contact him when this happened I became scared because I at the time I thought oh he's going to be back in the office next week this isn't a secret I want to keep like I don't want him coming near me I, I don't want him having anything to do with me so when uh, my manager um, her name I won't say but when she came in I knew she had been a counsellor previous to her starting this job that we were in so I said to her uh, have you ever counselled anyone who's seen um, abuse images or being exposed to um, pornography or in, inappropriate things. And she was like, yeah, I have, but um, I can't give you counseling for this if it's um, not work-related. And I said, well, I found some questionable pictures on um, my boss's computer. And she was like, uh, what do you mean by questionable? And I said, photos of kids, because I didn't want to outright say what it was um it, i was still in a state of shock 
and uh, he she said, oh, well, you might, like, they might be his family or they might just be his private photos. You shouldn't be looking through that stuff. And I'm like, no, these if these are private family photos, they're weird photos, like really bad photos. And it took a lot of convincing her to show her what I meant. And I took her over and I showed her again. And so this is the third time I've had to see this stuff. And I purposely this time wasn't looking at it, but I had to show her anyway. And she was horrified and she was like, we've got to call the police. So when our, um, our, both of our manager, so our highest up arrived, we told her, we didn't show her because she was a, a mother, she had kids. We called the police and the police at first were like, okay, that's serious. We'll, we'll come out straight away. But they didn't, um, we, we reported this at nine in the morning. They didn't appear until about one o'clock in the afternoon. So we had to keep the office running as if nothing was going on, as if nothing had happened. And we couldn't um, tell anyone where our boss was we had no idea where he was and his parents actually called and said uh, he didn't make it down to Kayama so now we had a missing boss and potentially someone indulging in illegal activity he was now missing that was a bit scary when the police arrived they had to interview me because I found the um, images, but because I was um, a minor, I was 17 at the time, I had to be accompanied by my manager because they won't allow you to make a uh, witness statement if you're underage um, by yourself. You need to have a parent or um, guardian or someone with you Mm -hmm. to do that. So we were taken to the police. One of the cool things um, I remember about the day that kind of cheered me up was it was my first trip in the back of a police car and it was a red police car, not a white and blue one, which is kind of rare out here. So I thought that was kind of funny and it kind of sticks out in my mind as like a positive amongst the day. And um, yeah, we got um, taken to the police and it was really hot. It was in our summertime, so it was really hot and sticky in there. We had to wait ages and then I had to give my witness statement. And um, my manager had to give a description of what my boss looked like because he was potentially missing as well. But because of the amount of images we found, he needed to be arrested straight away on site almost so we um are giving our witness statements and i'm asked to then see the photos again and i was like why why do i need to look at them again and they're like we need you to tell us if your boss is in any of these pictures and i was like do you do you really mean that why why and they were like well because the photos don't i don't have people wearing masks or balaclavas or blurred out. Like apparently most um, abuse images, people will go to lengths to actually cover their faces and identities. But the thing with these photos is um, the people involved did not go to any attempts to cover their faces. So I had to look at the images a third time to confirm that my boss was not or was in the pictures. And um, he wasn't, thank God. that would have been traumatizing even more if it was someone I knew, I think. So that was the whole experience. 
did your boss reappear? <laughs> um, well, here's the thing. He was actually found in a mental health hospital. He had been tipped off by one of his friends that the police were um, investigating him because he was uh, he had offended um, in the past. Uh, he had committed a crime of grooming a teenager in the past and he was um, in jail and he was out on bail. When he was doing those trips down the south coast, he was actually um, in contact with another minor and uh, the police were um, investigating that activity. When I found the images on his computer, that was something that he could definitely be arrested on. So he was in a mental health hospital, but then he was arrested. He had a bit of a breakdown because he was um, so scared about going back to uh, jail for um, potentially grooming a child. But um, in reality, the images that he had on his computer, that's what actually got him. That should have been more than enough. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what got him in the end. And as horrible as it was what he was doing to that um, or potentially doing. I've never actually had it confirmed whether he was grooming that child down the south coast or not. All I uh, was told by the police was that he was visiting and in contact with the child and um, in Australia when uh, you get arrested for child abuse um, cases you can't actually um, be in contact with kids you can't work with kids you can't uh, do mentoring programs or things like that Mm -hmm. so he was he would have just been breaching his parole conditions but uh, for what happened with what I found that that cemented his charges he had to go back to jail for that do you know what what he was sentenced to or what the outcome of his punishment was I was told between 10 and 15 years because of the amount of images. There were over 100 images. Mm-hmm. But he ended up only serving three years and getting out on good behavior and uh, is now working in a different business. Wow. <laughs> Wasn't expecting yeah. that. It's um, mind-boggling, isn't do you, it? Do you guys have a sex offender registry? Like, is there – is no. he – It's not open to the public. There is one, but it's um, protected by privacy laws. There's move to actually make a sex offender list public, but um, at the moment, no, he's suppressed by privacy laws. So how did you deal with this whole situation? Because I I can only imagine if I I was in your shoes, uh, that would stick with me for the rest of my life. Well, the, the funny thing is, at the time... I was going, my family were going through a really hard time. My mum had severe psychotic depression due to my uh, grandfather passing away a year earlier. So she was receiving a lot of help for her mental health issues at the time, Um, hospital visits, psychiatrist visits and whatnot. And um, that's partially why I dropped out of school um, and didn't complete high school was because my mum's health was... um, she was sick and I needed to help look after my little brother. So when that, when this all happened, even though my, I told my parents what happened, I didn't tell them what I've, I've seen. I've only told a psychologist what I've, what I've actually seen. They didn't really take it very seriously at the time. They were more like, Oh, that's terrible. 
but they weren't they didn't realize it would have a serious impact on me so i didn't actually get um any real counseling or psychiatric help until recently so that was that's always been a hard thing and at the time because my mom was um, dealing with her own depression and anxiety issues, I remember she said to me, you shouldn't talk about it because it only keeps the issue alive. And I kind of accepted that at the time. So I didn't talk about it. I kind of just um, put it in a box and left it in my brain. The only problem is it would get out. It it would manifest in dreams and um, or triggers which are things that remind me of what I saw and can freeze me up and make me really scared at times. I didn't realize that by not talking about it I would actually put myself through more trauma and extend the trauma for longer than it would have. If I had gone to a psychologist or psychiatrist straight away I think I would have um, benefited more than I did but um at the time, I thought, no, I'm just going to go on with my life. And it also ne- negatively impacted me with other work options I had. Um, I went from job to job to job because I would go into an office environment and have a panic attack. I would be scared that if my boss or superior asked me to do something, I would find those kinds of images or I would find something else disturbing and I would self-sabotage quite frequently. It it was not a very good time for me. It got um, so bad, I ended up having to quit working full-time and um, become a full-time uni student for uh, two years just to avoid work. It wasn't that I didn't want to work. It was more that work was more stressful and traumatizing for me, but I couldn't explain that to people. And that's that's a demoralizing thing. It, it sounds like PTSD, and it's it's what I I have a friend that got back from being deployed, and he didn't kill anybody, but he had to run patrols and stuff. And he gets home uh, and he says, you know, every time I see a trash can or a, or a piece of trash or something on the side of the road, I think it's going to be an IED. And, mm. and and you're you're here. You're you're thinking every time you have to be told to go on someone's computer, you're gonna have to you're, you're gonna come across something, and it's it's yeah. a very similar situation where your mind is just telling you, this is the worst case scenario, and even though yeah. when there's no danger, there's no uh, sign of threat, and you're in a safe environment, but your brain is now locked into nope, you're you're going to come across this. Yeah. I remember working in one office where I was um, a EA um, or a PA, I think you might call them there. And my boss at that workplace, he shared his email inbox with me. And he would all the time say, Aaron, can you go in and uh, print out this email for me? And I'd freak out. I would be sitting there for 10 minutes stewing over, oh, my God, I've got to go into his email and print it out. What if um, I come across something I'm not supposed to? What if I get in trouble? What if I get fired? And it's something simple. Printing out an email, anyone can do it. But I, my mind would turn it into this massive undertaking that would just stress me out. And again, uh, they didn't understand because it's not really something um, – 
at the time I would share with people that this happened. It's not really fun, polite conversation, is it? No, no, it's not. And that's, it's something that I think a lot of people are, I won't say guilty of, but it's a, something that we, a lot of us do is we have something Mm -hmm. traumatic happen and we keep it to ourselves. We do not ask for help. We don't want to inflict our suffering upon others. So we, we keep it. And yeah. and if we don't release it out into the world, sometimes it, it just burns you up. It, it manifests in you. And, and that's, yeah. I, I think that's exactly what you're describing to a T. Yeah. And I think because um, at the time my mom was going through her own issues with depression and anxiety, her advice to me, even though it makes sense, it wasn't right. It uh, was the wrong advice. I, I don't want to keep the issue alive forever and I certainly don't think it's a good idea to keep talking about it all the time but I have to tell someone and that's why, why I decided to get um, professional help because I was getting to the point where I needed to talk about it mm-hmm. and talking about it has actually made me a stronger person. And it's something that people don't understand. Your mom doesn't understand. I might have given you the same advice. I don't know. You know, it's mm. it's one of those things where we are not in a role yeah. to tell you, you know, where, yeah. where, you know, you go to a counselor or you go to a, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They're going to be able to say, no, we, we need this needs to be talked about. You need to go to counseling. Mm. Whereas the rest of us, we're not. <laughs> we shouldn't be giving advice on that because no. we're, <laughs> we're, we're not doing that for a living. So Exactly. I, I remember when a little after it happened, I went to my parents' uh, church and there was a woman there who is a counselor. My dad had told her that I had been through this experience and maybe I should... Um, make a time to see her. So she came over with the best intentions and said, would you like to chat about it? And I'm like, all right, we can talk. I don't really see the point, but all right, we can talk. I told her the bare minimum of what happened. And she said to me, and I can't for the life of me understand why she said this to me. She said, okay, when um, you have those flashbacks of the kids, try to... um, turn the situation into a positive. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, okay, if whatever you're seeing, don't think of it as a bad thing, but think of it as something good. So, for example, this is one of the images. It's not graphic, but uh, one of the abusers uh, was had a photo with his arm around one of the kids. And they were looking into the camera. And that photo is the worst of them because he was unrepentant there was just nothing there and um she said take that image and pretend that maybe he's uh, the kid's dad or uncle and i remember thinking at the time that no that's messed up like i can't put a positive on any of these images because they're exists no positive i can't make these images into oh they're not so bad they're not that bad because no they're they're evil at the call and with an unfriendly advice like that that was another reason why I just sort of kept it down because I don't didn't think at the time people would understand it was only when I got um, referred to an actual trauma psychologist that I actually was told that that advice from that particular counselor was very unhelpful 
I I would agree. I mean, I <laughs> I understand their point, but mm. I don't in this situation, I would not try to make that into a positive. You know, if you, no. I guess if you like, let's say you went out on a day trip and you're driving and you had a car accident, but that same mm. day you went to the beach, maybe it would be, hey, we'll focus on your trip to the beach and try to forget about the car accident. I don't know, like something to that effect. But when it comes to uh, child pornography, the, there's no turning that into something positive. That's, no. yeah, that's on no. a whole other level that doesn't make sense. It, it, it didn't. And I didn't, I haven't followed that advice at all. That Because at the time I knew, not helpful. That yeah. is not helpful. Where are you at now? I mean, are you, do you still have triggers? Do you still have uh, moments where you fear things? Oh, yeah. I, my triggers are children crying. I cannot be around kids that make noises or are really loud or having hissy fits or I, oh, that's what we say in Australia for tantrums. I'm um, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, when I, especially if I'm like at a public library and they're doing story time hour and the kids are singing that grates through me, like nails on a chalkboard, I have to put on headphones and drown it out because it just takes me right back to what I saw. When I spoke to my trauma psychologist, uh, I remember she asked me, when comparing to adult pornography, would you say it was um, softcore, medium or hardcore? And I said hardcore. It was hardcore, no doubt in my mind. So it's you can imagine it's frustrating when you're doing your uni work or trying to work and you have something hardcore flash across your brain because you can hear kids in the background and you know you're surrounded by a big group of kids and that makes life hard sometimes um i have good days but there are days where i can't be around kids i have to be separate to them because i'm scared i'm gonna hurt them or i'm scared i'm gonna have a meltdown um i remember after this happened um after i saw the images this would have been a day or two after i was uh, giving my brother a bath he was four at the time i used to give him a bath quite often and he used to love it because i would read to him um comic books like batman and um superman and spider-man stuff like that so i'd read him a comic book while he was in the bath and I remember just um, being left alone in the house with my brother. He was in the bath and I just burst into tears and I was sobbing. And my poor brother's sitting in the bath waiting for me to get him out and help him, you know, get dry and, and dressed. But I just, I couldn't be with my brother in that scenario. And my parents uh, returned from a walk and found me on the floor sobbing. They got Sam out, they got him dried and, and into his PJs. I was a mess because I was put into this situation where here I was with a child and it was totally innocent. I've always helped my brother when he was younger in the shower, uh, in, in the bath. I'd always help. But it turned those situations into really negative ones for me. And so for a long time, I had a bit of a distant relationship with my brother because I couldn't. I would look at him and I'd just feel so sick and racked with guilt. I don't know. I didn't mention this earlier, but when um, I was interviewed for the job, 
I was being interviewed by the owner of the company and my future boss um, at the time, he went downstairs to grab a coffee and my mother and my brother were waiting for me to finish my interview at that coffee shop. And my brother was working on a, a puzzle and my mom was having her coffee. My boss comes back from grabbing a coffee and he says to me, oh, I just saw your mum and brother downstairs. Your brother was working on a puzzle. He's quite cute, isn't he? And at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But when I found out later who he was and what he was interested in, it sickened me and scared me. Yeah, that's, oh, God, that's just creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it it's only creepy on the other side of it like at the time i thought oh okay maybe he likes kids maybe he's a dad or maybe he's a granddad or an uncle maybe he just likes kids in a non weird way so i didn't think much of it it was only till after the interview that i was like sickened by that because i don't know what he was thinking so do you have children yourself no, um, no, no, no. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. Um, but I, my brother's 12 now mm. and uh, we have a better relationship. I'm a lot more comfortable around mm. him and it took a long time to get there. Yeah. I'm glad that I got there. But at the time, uh, it was hard to be around my brother by myself because I was always scared that something would happen and I would get blamed for it. Mm. Or I would have a flashback in his presence. I was worried that people would judge me for that. You didn't know what was going to happen. You just, your body's reacting and knows yeah. something bad. And, and that's, that's all you know is that fear, that's, that anxiety, that something bad. And you're, you just don't want to be around him because you want to protect him. Yeah, exactly. It's um, something that I really took seriously because I love my brother to the moon and back and I don't want anything bad to happen to him but at the same time I didn't want to people to know that I had been through this experience so I, I think the people who didn't know at the time thought I was just being cold and distant to my brother. We don't all have crystal balls and can look and know exactly what everyone's going through. And I guess that's why yeah. I, I prefer to be nice to everybody because I don't know what, what they're going through when I'm talking to them. I don't know what demons they're fighting. I just, yeah. I assume everybody's on edge. <laughs> and, and, exactly. You know. Because with the uh, situation I'm in, at the moment in Australia, we're going through a royal commission into sex abuse of uh, children. And it's all on the news all the time. It's always uh, being reported on horrible cases that are happening to kids. And those are also triggers for me. I can't really read about it because it just brings it right back to the surface. In Australia, there is a culture where we take our kids very seriously. So when you hear that um, a priest or a minister or someone in authority was abusing a kid, a lot of people come out swinging saying that they should be, you know, castrated or bring back the death penalty here. A lot of people are very harsh to uh, pedophiles. It's kind of hard for me because I had no idea my boss was a pedophile until what I saw what I saw 
and he was in jail. You can't tell what who they are on the outside. You, there's no giving it away. I remember a close girlfriend of mine, she was asking at the time, it was very unhelpful, but she was like, what did he look like? And I remember saying sarcastically, oh, he grew devil horns and had red eyes and every time he would turn his computer on, uh, flames would come up around him. She looked at me very weirdly, but I remember thinking, well, you don't know what a pedophile looks like. And so when people say, oh, the dogs should be rounded up and castrated, they're animals and things like that, I find myself thinking, well, it's, it's a horrible thing, certainly, but you can't tell. You, you just can't tell. I guess the the crux of it is it's um, something that I believe that the justice system really should deal with. I don't think it's something that vigilante justice will solve. Yeah, exactly. I guess if it's one of those things where if you if I heard that a pedophile was gunned down in the middle of the street, I'm not mm. I'm not feeling a lot of sympathy. But no. but do I want people to go out and shoot them in the street? Well, I, I just want them away from children. I want them put yeah. away, you know, where they can do no harm to anybody. Yeah, I think that sums it up perfectly. I have often been asked, and this is another part of the story as well. I've often been asked, what would you do if you ever came across your old boss? Like, what would you say or do? And the funny thing is, one of my best friends who I live with he asked me the name of my boss and I gave it to him. And he is related distantly to my former boss. He's my former boss's cousin. Knowing that my best friend is a blood relative of my former boss's means that in theory, I could get access to this guy now that he's out of jail. That's how I found out he only uh, served three years um, of his sentence and was uh, let out early. Knowing that has kind of made things a little worse because I'm now in a position where, in theory, I could talk to him and just say, look, you've now put a a responsibility on me, a burden that I can't shake. Most of the time when uh, child pornography is found or seized from computers, it's usually by trained professionals like the police or investigators, detectives. It's not often that a member of the public actually sees abuse images. I'm a, I'm a very small minority of people that are not a pedophile but has actually seen mm-hmm. child pornography. And to know that um, he's responsible for that, it's something that in some ways I do want to say to him. I, I do want to say, why did you put that burden on me? Why did you make it so easy to find? I mean, no offense, but hiding your stash in the sample pictures folder. That's just stupid. I think it is so stupid. Um, My best friend works in IT and he was like, he couldn't even encrypt the file or put the file on a USB and rename the, the pictures, boring things that no one would find interesting so that if you saw the shortcut in there, you wouldn't even bother clicking on it. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, he, he hid his pictures in plain sight. I think part of him wanted to get caught. Yeah, that's not, not that I want to give somebody ideas on how to hide <laughs> terrible things on their computers, but what an idiot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
short of he, making it his background on his desktop, I, I don't know what else he could have done to leave it out in the open. As if he had uh, left his um, house unlocked. I, I just walked in and found it and walked out pretty much. It wasn't hard to find. Um, it, it's funny, those books I was initially looking for were harder to find than those uh, pictures. Oh so, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty disturbing how easily I could find it. It wasn't hard at all, but at the same time, I've had it pointed out to me, maybe he did want to get caught. Maybe he did want to be punished. I can't say for certain, but I don't think it's fair that he brought me into it. It's disgusting. Wow. Yeah. A week beforehand, um, my superior, um, she had her son in the office and he was uh, using that same computer and was for a, an assignment he was doing. And I remember thinking at the time, if he had gone into the sample pictures folder, he would have found it. And he was a kid. In some ways, I'm just kind of glad that I found it and not him because I got stuck with it and it's not going away anytime soon. But through my psychology, I've learned how to deal with that pain and trauma and get past it a lot better than I used to. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. You're, it's, it's something that I've, I've thought about because I, I work in IT and I have to back up people's files and folders and re-image their computers and give it back mm. to them. And through the process of that, sometimes I have to go through their documents and, and some, mm. sometimes they would say, hey, I don't really care about anything on my computer except for this one thing and I'd have to go hunt it down. But I never had to the level of what you have. I just sometimes would think, wow, I don't I hope I don't come across something I don't want to see, you know. Yeah. One of those things in an office or in IT that you don't often think about remote accessing someone's computer, no problem, or clearing out their computer to make more space for the hard drive, no problem. But for me, it presents a whole new trauma because I am asked to go through someone else's property. And nine times out of 10, I will have this moment of, oh my goodness, I don't want to do that. What if I find something I shouldn't find? And what if I get fired for for it? Because that's the other thing. I lost my job at that company, at Bartercard. I lost my job for finding those images. My um, The owners of the company said I acted improperly by going to the police straight away. They said I needed to make an anonymous tip off outside of the office that... Um, because of what I did, my actions, um, they would have to close that particular branch because of the negative attention we were receiving. So for a very long time, I felt that even though I went to the police, even though he got caught, I did the wrong thing. I was the uh, person who stuffed up. That's not pleasant and it certainly doesn't do wonders for one's confidence. And, and that was the other thing, though. At the time, I didn't see. Now I realize I could have actually sued them for wrongful dismissal because mm -hmm. um, I, I did the right thing. But at the time, I didn't want to draw attention to it. Um, I just wanted to get out of there. I did not want to go back. And it's been hard to keep work afterwards. Um, I'm now – I actually run my own virtual assistant business as well as working as a call center operator. I do a lot of freelance marketing work, 
And it's the only way I can um, actually have a job and a stable income is if I work for myself and work from home because when I'm in an office environment, I get anxiety. I become really scared that something similar will happen. It's almost like returning to the scene of the crime. I, I just function much better when I'm in my own home environment. I can work, get work done and I'm not worried about, oh, am I going to do something wrong or find something that will get me into a lot of trouble? It, it's so weird that a, a traumatic event like that can turn a benign office space into something so mm. scary. Yeah, it is. I um, remember talking to my best friend about it and he works um, in an office. He works there every day and he said, it's just an office. Like, you'll be fine. Just remind yourself it's just an office. And I said to him, well, it's almost like I'm returning to the scene of the crime every day. It's like I'm returning to the place where it all happened. It might be a different office, but it still has computers. It still has chairs. It still has a water cooler. There's um, so many elements of it that just remind me of that. And because it was my first job, I was learning a lot of things. And I felt like anything I did learn just went out of my head because I was full of anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's only been recently that I've kind of gotten that stability back and have been actually able to function and as a member of society and earn money, which is a normal thing. I think I think everyone wants to earn a little bit of money and wants to survive. Yeah, they'll they'll never understand because it's not that you can just tell your brain it's just an office. It's not. Yeah, it's not that it's your mind. Your body is telling you something else. It's it's yeah. conflicted in the messages and the signals it's sending to you. And that's something that oh, yeah. most of us don't quite grasp when it comes to how somebody responds to something. We just think, well, it's just easy. Just come on in. You know, I when I'm busy, I don't think about it. But when I'm it's the quiet times when there's not much to do that. It, it will flash back into my mind sometimes and I would be doing a task and it would just flash across my mind and I'd be thinking, there's nowhere to hide. I can't go anywhere that won't remind me of it, mm -hmm. of this event. It felt very constricting and now that I work mostly from home, occasionally I work on site for different clients but I'm not spending all my time in an office. It's the only way that I can have some level of peace of mind like when I'd try to sleep as well, I'd have dreams and it wouldn't necessarily be about what I saw or anything like that. But there were there were times when I would even come home from work, go to bed and have a really bad dream, wake up feeling sick to my stomach and be thinking, you know, I'm not even at an office, but here it is eating me up. It's followed me home. And it wasn't until my trauma psychologist said, um, when you're sleeping and your brain is um, regenerating and um, recharging, if there are things that are in our um, survival part of the brain that are telling us we're in danger, if you spent all day worrying and anxious and unable to sleep, it's going to resurface and it's going to resurface in your dreams. And it's only because I've been able to understand that and learn techniques to not have that happen it's been a while since i've had nightmares but when they happen they're pretty bad because they're they're dreams and they're dreams that are not always associated with what i see and for a while i was feeling very guilty about it because i was thinking oh am i creating these horrible things mm -hmm. and it was no it's just my brain trying to process it all
I tell people just because I'm a computer guy, I say, you know, when you defrag your hard drive or when you clean up your hard drive, I go, that's that's what your brain's doing at night. Yeah. It's just trying so, to process it. It's something that I'm still learning. And with PTSD, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. But with trauma, we all we all carry some level of trauma. We just need to know how to best deal with it and accept that that trauma might live with us forever but it it can't rule us i've been constantly reminded that um even though what i saw was horrific it can't hurt me my former boss he can't hurt me it it happened and even though i will get no closure from it i'll never know if those kids are okay Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, (laughs) You you take care. Good night. All right. Good night. Have a good one. Thank you very much, Aaron from Australia. The next conversation I have is Aaron from the UK. Aaron was sexually abused as a child. Again, this one has some more graphic details that we normally don't get into, but I'm just giving everyone a little forewarning here. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Awesome. Where Where do you live? Where are you from? Uh, Lancashire. My village is called Oddlethistle, and uh, you might have heard of the Pendle Witches in your line of work. It's a famous place in England. Uh-huh. <laughs> Obviously, it's not that famous. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's called It's called Pendle Hill. Okay. It's famous for being. It's something to do with being like in, in a triquatra, like equally. Uh, equally distant from water and the other whatever elements and stuff like that. So they reckon that loads of witches live there and there's oh. like a hill and they make beer yeah. there now and call it like witches brew and stuff like that. So okay. it's, it's near there-ish. I just thought that might be somewhere that you'd heard of. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't sorry. It wasn't ringing a bell. <laughs> but now I'm interested and I'm going to go look it up. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess start whatever, you know, what, what happened? Like, did your did your mother remarry or? How? Yeah, yeah, she did. Like, okay, so it was, I think the dates are going to be vague because I was obviously a child. But okay. uh, in, I think, 1991 or 1992, and I was three or four, my mom got remarried to another man. And um, so I have. You know, some some uh, siblings with my mum and my dad. And then my mum mar- married this other man. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had, you know, a couple more kids with him. And it was while she was in hospital that stuff just, just was going awful at home. And uh, so she, she was quite poorly... Um, with the first child of that marriage and she was in hospital for a really long time and like it was just weird stuff that started happening like that you didn't think anything of like when you've got you know quite a lot of kids in a family you end up doing chores from very young you know just like simple stuff like uh, wiping down the table after your meal and stuff like that but it got to be like too much (laughs) chores I don't want to sound like a whiny kid or anything but you know if you're like you're, what, you're running. That? You're you're running the house at this point. You're not. Yeah, you know. yeah. He would. There was a a downstairs 
toilet in our house and it the the door handle on it was broken and uh, so you could pull the handle out from the outside and you wouldn't be able to get out from the inside if you know what I mean so it was almost like you could lock the door from the outside essentially and he would lock me in there this is my mom's husband and he would lock me in there for a long long time and it was really weird as well because it was yellow it was painted yellow this bathroom and I wouldn't eat any yellow food, like, later on uh, in my life. I just refused to eat yellow food and stuff. And the first thing that I remember being of, like, a sexual nature from, like, an abuse standpoint was he would strip me naked and, like, chase me around the house like it was a game. I didn't like it, but I didn't, obviously, at that age, I think I was probably about seven at the time. This is when my mum was in hospital again with the second child from that marriage. So there's a baby in the house as well. Um, and he would chase me around the house and take all my clothes off while, like it was a game while my oldest uh, siblings were at their youth group, which I was too young for. And that just got like more often and progressively worse. Um, and this is your and, stepfather, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I... I I would never call him that. I would always say my mum's husband. Yeah, okay. That <laughs> I would works. never call him that. <laughs> no and, uh, <laughs> and And then he started to... Uh, jumping right into this, sorry. Uh, it's this, I'm sure you've heard words, but yeah. He started to use his fingers to penetrate me. Uh, and, and it was like a game to him. And then I would run away. And this is in front of a baby as well. So it's like crazy, crazy stuff. Just little things that were really, really badly inappropriate and saying things. And he, one time he was having an argument with my mum and he had my mum up against the front door with a knife to her throat while me and my brothers and sisters were at the top of the stairs screaming down the stairs. It was absolutely horrible. It was just the worst. And as far as like that house goes, when we lived in that house, I mean, that was pretty much the extent of it, apart from, you know, uh, beatings, uh, over over punishing really. You know, if you did something bad, it wasn't just like a smack on the hand or a smack. It was it was proper beating. If you didn't do the dishes or didn't do a chore, it wasn't just a corrective action. It was no, it it wasn't even stuff like that because we always just did that because it was easier than having an argument. It was if you said something back, if you answered a question and he didn't like the answer that you gave or. If he decided that you said, okay, but you said it in an insolent way, but it would be a really bad beating. I remember one time, I think this actually haunts my mum more than it haunts me. My mum was going out. I don't know whether she was going to work or going to uni. She was at university at the time. So she was, she was working in the evenings and she was at university during the day. So she was out of the house a lot, which he took full advantage of with the things that he was doing now. I don't know. I don't know what was going on with him and my other siblings. Um, but I, I can only tell what happened with me. Um, but one time my mum was on her way out and I just I just burst into tears because I did not want to be left in the house with this man. Um, and she said, what's wrong? What are you crying for? You know, she's in a rush or whatever. She was, you know, kind of short with me. And I said, I don't want you to go. And she was like, I have to go. Why don't you want me to go? And I said, because he makes me do things that I don't want to do. And she immediately assumed that I was talking about these chores that we had to do around the house. And she said, if he, if he tells you to do something, you have to do it. 
And then she left. Oh, God. I know, I know, it's crazy. And I used to do things like uh, we got um, leaflets at school for, you know, child line and if things are happening at home, you need to tell us. I mean, the area that I lived in, it wasn't like the best area at all. It was working class area. And so they were, you know, they were quite um, attentive to stuff like that at school. They would say, you shouldn't be getting, you know, hit at home if you're getting hit at home by anybody, even if it's, you know, your cousin or your brother or your uncle or, or you know, whoever. You, sh- you need to tell someone because it shouldn't be happening. Obviously, don't talk to strangers everywhere. It's a Catholic school as well, so everywhere that's not covered by a swimming costume is off limits and nobody should be touching you there. And if they are, you need to tell us and stuff like that, and I and then just couldn't do it, and I think I was a, just a little bit too young to realise, really, it was, it was really bad, and then um, there was started being adverts on the television for Childline, I don't know if you know what that is. I've heard of it, I mean, we have similar things in the States. Yeah, yeah. and it came, and it said, um, you can ring up, and it won't show, it's, it's a free phone number, so, you know, it's like a it's free to call and it won't show up on your phone bill even though it's free even if you get an itemized bill it won't show up so you need to ring and I always I wanted to I wanted to ring up but I think my mum and her husband were having some issues at the time just completely apart from everything else that was going on and he was sleeping on the sofa a lot of the time um, and I wanted to creep downstairs to use the phone at night but I couldn't because he was in the living room which is where the phone was and I couldn't do it and I would pretend to hurt myself at school, pretend that I'd fallen over and I'd hurt my ankle so that I would go into the nurse, you know, uh, and be alone with the nurse and might muster up the courage to tell her, but I never did. And one time I threw, <laughs> this is so stupid, I threw a roller skate down the stairs to make a really loud bang and then ran down the stairs and led at the bottom of the stairs and pretended that I'd really hurt my arm. Oh my god, my arm is broken. My, it's so painful. I can't. I can't cope with it. You need to take me to the hospital. In the hope that while I was at the hospital, I would be alone with a proper nurse at the hospital, and I would be able to tell her. How How old do you think you were when you pulled this the roller skate? The roller skates. I think I was about nine or ten. That's pretty high level thinking for a nine or ten year old to think of that to go to a hospital to be around a, a nurse or a doctor. I mean, that's, yeah. You're, yeah. you're growing up way faster than you should. Well, yeah, you know, that, that's a side effect of this kind of thing, I think. I think you do grow way faster. And growing up in a house with so many brothers and sisters, uh, you always end up doing chores around the house and taking care of each other and stuff like that. And mm. you do, you do you grow up fast because... You know, like I said, my mum was at uni in the day and then she was at work at night, so she wasn't there. And uh, this this guy that she was married to was just a violent alcoholic. And he wasn't... If we weren't taking care of the house, it wasn't going to get taken care of, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it just... So, he, he's passed yeah. out on the couch or he's just, you know, drinking yeah, or whatever. Yeah. He's not going to get up. I and... remember he would lie on the living room floor on his side and he would watch TV and he would drink cans of lager. And to this day, I cannot stand anyone drinking anything out of a can. The sound of opening, like, even a can of Coke, the sound of opening the can makes me wince. It's awful. And he would, he would lie there on his side, and he would line up the cans in, like, a really long line. And I don't know whether it's my, you know, looking back on it, where, you know, you're a kid and everything's much bigger, everything's so much more. But, you know... I. 
I seem to remember there being, you know, like 16 or 20 cans of beer in a morning on the living room floor in a line. I know guys that'll finish off a 30-pack in a day, so... We moved house when I was, I think, just at the end of being 10 and the start of being 11, if you know what I mean, around that birthday, around my 11th birthday, so definitely younger than 11 in that house. I knew that I wanted to, obviously, the stunt I pulled with the roller skate, I knew I wanted to tell somebody and, and get out of there. Uh, but I didn't know how to say it, and I used to plan running away like I was going to steal some peanut butter and a loaf of bread, and I was going to take it down to the nature reserve that was a couple of miles from the house. I was going to walk there, and I was just going to stay in the woods because I just didn't want to be at home at all. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy the stuff uh, when I think back to it, and it was, it was really hard well, you, to you were planning go to, to school as well. Yeah. It sounds like you're planning to run away, at least temporarily. Yeah, I really, really badly wanted to run away. And that that was for a lot of the time as well because uh, my brothers and sisters weren't very nice to me either um, because, you know, they've got their own things. Whatever was going on, they've got their own things going on. Um, and even though I know a couple of things that were weird in the house, it didn't, it didn't happen to me, so uh, I'm not going to mention it. But it was you, know, you weren't the only victim in the household, I'm assuming. I don't know to what extent, mm -hmm. but no, no, I wasn't. And my mum was cert was certainly bearing the brunt of a lot of the beatings as well. Um, you know, I remember my mum doing a makeup in the morning a lot. And she's not now, she's not someone who wears makeup very often at all. But during that time, she would be wearing a lot of makeup um, because she was covering bruises, black eyes, fat lips, stuff like that. She was, I remember covering it up a lot to go to work, to go to uni, to do whatever. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just, uh, I don't have a single good memory of that house, unfortunately. So it's just when I finished primary school, so I was about 11, and we moved house to a slightly larger house, not very far away from the old house. I was still... You know, young, I was, I was 11 and I had, uh, I've made some friends, we lived in a cul-de-sac um, and there was a few other families in the cul-de-sac and they had girls around my age, one was next door um, and it was it was weird, it was like a, a you know, like row houses, terraced houses, but they went in a U-shape, so it was next door, it was attached as well. Uh, this is one of the one of the worst one of the worst things because it was the first it was the first time that it went so far um i've been invited to the next door neighbors to go for a sleepover with my friend i, I went in you know back to my house and i asked my mom is it okay if i go for a sleepover next door and she said yeah that's fine um are you having your tea there uh, or you're having your, your tea here and I said oh I don't know I'll come back anyway and by the time I got back my mum had gone uh, wherever she was going and uh, it was just her husband in the house I said right I'm gonna go and get my stuff um, and I'll see you tomorrow and he was like where, well, where are you going I said I'm going next door I'm having a sleepover he said you're not and I said well mum said that I could and he was like well well your mum's not here is she and, I, and I'm saying you can't and I was like, oh, you know, just thinking, I really, I really don't want to deal with this. I thought I was going to get a night out of this house, you know. Yeah. 
he said no and because I, I argued my point he said right well you're going to bed now um that's it you know like being sent to bed like a naughty child I had these pajamas that were like a like a onesie basically like a big baby girl for kids these pajamas I just wish <laughs> that I had had different pajamas on at this point because I think that was I don't know if whether that whether the act of him having to take those off to smack the back of my legs because I was naked underneath, apart from my underwear, like my knickers. I was too young for a bra, so just knickers. And I don't know whether the fact that they had to take off the whole thing to smack my the back of my legs was just like too tempting for him because I was then naked in front of him or whatever. So he came upstairs because I was having a temper tantrum. I was so frustrated. I was so angry. I had no control over this awful situation that I was living in. So he came, he came upstairs because I was obviously screaming, making noise, whatever I was doing. He came upstairs and he was obviously fixing to give me a beating. And he, so he took the whole thing down. So I was just in my knickers. And he started to smack the back of my legs. And it's still, it's still daylight outside. This is probably June or July. And in the back garden was like a hill. It went up and it went like if you stood on the hill at the, at the very back fence of the garden, you could see into the top windows. He took the whole thing off and he's smacking the back of my legs. And then he took my knickers off. And then something must have clicked in him and he decided that this was his moment, that he was going to rape me completely. It's a bit it's a bit of a blur what happened. Like I can remember you know, like a few seconds of it here and there. I remember it was extremely painful. I remember the weight of him on my chest because it was, I was late, I was laying on my back and he was, you know, like holding me down with his weight. I remember the weight of him on my chest. And all I was thinking about was that my friend next door, because it was the same hill, the same garden, just with a fence, that if she was playing out in her garden and I could hear her and her brother playing out, if she went up that hill, she would be able to see into my bedroom window and see what was happening. And I was so, so ashamed of what was happening. It was just so awful. Like, I don't know how I managed to make it through after that. I really, I really don't know. Because if something like, ha- like that happened to me now, I don't think I, I don't think I'd live through it. I really don't. But, you know, it's crazy to think that I, I made it through that that one experience and that was only the first one it's, it's you think now you were able to process what exactly is happening and it what you were 11 years old I, I think you're old enough to understand this is horrifying what what he's doing yeah it was really really horrifying it happened uh, maybe another like like a full rate <laughs> it's bad that i have to distinguish between what was just just being molested and what was actual rape I mean, it's, uh, all, it's all an but, assault, but yeah, it's... Yeah. Like a full penetrative rate mm-hmm. probably happened another, I want to say between eight and ten times after that. After this first time, you after still, you didn't say anything to your mother? You, no. It just it just kept happening over and over again? I, I couldn't say it. I couldn't mm. say it. But did, did he do this in like a you're going to be disciplined type way or was he just doing it just outwardly now and, and just whenever he pleased? Well, this the second, maybe the second and third time it was again that he was, you know, giving me 
discipline. But when I was 12, um, my eldest sibling moved out. Um, so I got my own room. And then it was whenever the house was empty, apart from me, that he would, he would you know, do it. And when you've got that many people living in a house, like I've got quite a lot of brothers and sisters. So when you've got that many people in a house, fortunately, it just being me as the only child home didn't actually happen that often you know too often considering but it wasn't that often um so he didn't he didn't get the opportunity to do it as much as he i'm sure he would have wanted to do it but um you know at, at least another after the first time at least another eight times if not ten times that happened but this whole thing about stripping me naked and chasing around the house that did not start ever um until my mum divorced him I have younger siblings and he would do it with them in the house and they would be laughing like it was a game because he would be laughing and they were entirely too young to understand what was happening. Fortunately, he never sodomized me with his penis, but he did He did do it with his fingers during these let's strip every naked and chase around the house games that he liked to play. When did they get a divorce and what was the divorce over what happened was it's tough to remember this day like what had happened before it kicked like before it kicked off but i think i decided that i was going to get up early and sneak out the house to go swimming with my friends um instead of asking permission because i knew that if i asked and he was in the room the answer was definitely going to be no because he was always trying to make he's always trying to keep me in the house always okay i remember doing that and being in a lot of trouble uh, so I think it was the, this occasion and I'd come back at about, you know, one, one or two o'clock in the afternoon and I'd gone straight upstairs, didn't say anything to anybody, just gone upstairs and he came, he burst into my room in a rage. He punched me in the face. Just out, and, of, the blue, just out of the blue? just. Well, it wasn't really out of the blue because he was so mad, but there were other people in the house, so he couldn't do you know, his usual method of discipline. So he put, he punched me in the face and I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. I fell back onto my bed. At this time, I'm only 13. And I'm, you know, I was probably about four foot ten at the time. And this guy is like six foot two and 250 pounds, probably, Jeez. if not more. Yeah. And it, it was, it was a lot. And he dragged me up again. He dragged me off my bed by my ankle. And I stood up again because obviously he wanted me to be stood up again. And he hit me again. And then he just burst out. He just ran out of the house, just burst out of the house. And I went downstairs and obviously no bruise had formed yet, but my face was swollen. And, you know, some of my other siblings were in, in the living room. And my sister was stunned. Like, she couldn't believe that I'd been punched in the face. And my grandparents didn't live that far away. I don't know whether she ran there or she cycled there. It, it was it was like less than two miles away that they lived. And she went and she was going to get my granddad. And, you know, my granddad said uh, to, to my sister that he was going to come down with a really big plank of wood and kill him, basically, for punching his granddaughter in the face. My mum, she couldn't allow it. I, I don't want to speak badly of my mum, but I'm not sure that if my sister hadn't have involved my grandparents... I'm not sure that my mum would have reacted in the way that she did, which was, that's it, the door is shut now. 
like we're not married anymore. I'm getting a divorce. I think I think if if my sister hadn't involved my like extended family, that my mum would have you know he would have been able to worm his way back in with my mum. I believe it. I mean, it's most abusive relationships like that. Just uh, they they just keep going and and they can't remove themselves from the the situation. So yeah. What age were you when your mom finally did leave him? Somewhere between thirteen and fourteen. So pretty much what seven years old to fourteen. Yeah. Luckily, the the actual rape didn't start for a long time. So. You know, I was fortunate in that respect that, you know, I didn't have to endure any more of it than I did think. I don't know. It's, it's hard It's hard to find a silver lining to that part of my life, really, at all. The most unbelievable thing for me is that I managed to do really well in school the whole time. Like, I wasn't a delinquent. I wasn't in, you know, I was in the top sets for things in high school. Because we, obviously we start high school at 11. In the UK, so uh, yeah, I was in the top class for that. I got in year six. Your English listeners will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in year six, I got uh, three sixes in my stats. That's the highest, and you know, I don't know how how that happened, but I'm really I'm really glad of it. It didn't uh, destroy my education. It does for most people. I mean, whether it be physical abuse, sexual abuse, any kind of abuse usually will destroy somebody's focus and motivation. I mean, I can't even imagine. And you're you're going to school every day and putting on a smiley face and doing your work. And you know. Yeah. Did you ever tell your mother or your family? Yeah. And what happened then? Well, what happened, I was at college, which is you know, 16, 17, I think I was 17, I was doing my A-levels, I had a boyfriend and I lost my virginity to my boyfriend, Mm -hmm. obviously I didn't because that had already been stolen, but I never considered it that and I still don't. Um, You shouldn't, you shouldn't. I I always felt like it was mine to give away when I wanted to, you know, and he didn't get it because, but yeah, um, so I lost my virginity to my boyfriend and it was horrible. It was so horrible. For four years or so, I managed to just carry on like, oh, that's that part of my life is closed now, um, and he's gone. At, by this point, my mum wasn't allowing him to see my younger siblings either. So, you know, it was it was essentially gone. Um, and then, and then I lost my virginity to my boyfriend, and it was all it was just all came crashing like crushing me again I don't know it was just way more real this hurt I didn't know I didn't know if it was just gonna I was just gonna get used to having sex with my boyfriend and it was gonna go away I didn't know I didn't know how to handle it at all and I started to have a bit of a you know just going off the rails a little bit um you know like not going to school and going out drinking with my friends like twice a week and uh and I, I my mum and her she she got remarried again by this point my mum and her new husband took my younger siblings uh, on a trip and left me in the house because I was 17 and they were like oh she doesn't really have any friends anyway she'll probably just go to a friend's house and play risk <laughs> and uh but I didn't I had a party at my house yeah. <laughs> 
Because that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. And my mum my mom went mad. She went mad at me. And she was like, what is wrong with you? Why, why are you behaving like this? And I was like, you know, fuck off. I hate you. Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then a few, a few, maybe it was a week or, or two weeks later. And I was still in the same pattern of just like destroying myself and not really knowing what to do. At this point, I'd broken up with this boyfriend. So I just couldn't. I couldn't even look at him, you know. So, and I was starting to, like, be curt with my friends and stuff. And one night I got super, super drunk, super drunk. I went home and I was like, I just told my mum. And I was like, I just told her. And she looked like I just, like I just shot a dog. You know, she looked, absolutely heartbroken isn't the word for it. Mm-hmm. And she ended up ringing like she asked me for this like some story and stuff like tell me what happened and then she, I think she rang my other sisters um and asked them about certain details of is this horrible that she she was basically ringing my other siblings to corroborate my story and make sure I wasn't making it up oh my gosh I you thought know? she was asking them to see if it, the same thing had happened to them but it's actually yeah. she was doubting you in a way I think she was I really do think she was and I really 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 hope that she wasn't you know but that's that is genuinely what I think and she rang my granddad and my granddad came around and he was really mad he was really mad at everybody and I was just like oh shit Maybe I shouldn't have said anything, and it was just horrible. It was the worst. Um, and I ended up going to stay with one of my sisters because I couldn't, I just couldn't be at home because every time I looked at my mom, I just thought, I've literally just broken your heart. I have just broken your heart. And I remember one time she came bursting into our room and she was, she was in hysterics and she was saying, This is my fault. I've done this to you. I've done this to you. And I was just looking at her. I was like, I don't know what you want me to say. You, sh- you shouldn't have stayed with a man that beat you up because if he's beating you up, what do you think he's doing to your kids when you're not there? Do you know what I mean? And that's what I was thinking yeah. because I didn't understand what, I didn't understand how how horrible a domestic abuse filled relationship could be like and how, how hard it was for her as well. I didn't have, all I could think about was my own pain at that point. And uh, it was really hard, really, really bad. Well, yeah, I mean, you you can't see her pain because you're you're in such turmoil yourself. It, yeah, it, it, yeah. It doesn't excuse anybody, but at the same time, you can at least understand her situation. But at I the, can now. I can know, now. Yeah, exactly. It takes some time to understand it because yeah. it's not something you could ever comprehend while you're going through it. I, I have family members that I don't really agree with the way they parent and, and stuff. And I, I get frustrated and angry, but I have to remind myself sometimes that I'm, I'm not in their shoes. I don't know yeah. why they're making this decision. So was he ever charged? Was he ever yes. okay? Yeah. We all had to individually go and we went to this shitty little house because I was under 18 still at the time, they were still treating me like I was a kid. And I had to go to this little house that they decorated and there was like daisies on the walls. And, you know, it was it was appalling. <laughs> I was like, 
like, I'm, I am not six, what are you doing? And I went and sat in this little room and they recorded like um, a statement from me. And I don't want to disrespect the police, but they dealt with me completely wrong because I wasn't a child and they had, uh, uh, I'm sure that they have to, but they had a woman uh, who was, you know, she was obviously a police officer, but she was trained to deal with children and she was really patronising and it was just the worst. And I had to tell this woman that I'd never met before and I had to tell her everything that, and I really didn't want to talk about it that much. Yeah. And I was in there for like four hours and she was like, oh, as much detail as possible and all the rest of it. And I got to the point where, when I was talking to you, when I was 11 and it happened the first time and I just stopped. I was just like, right, that's it. That, you know, that's everything. See you later type of thing. And then I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't talk about it anymore. They sent me a statement, like someone had typed up what I'd said. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is, this is horseshit. This is not what I said at all. Did the stuff in, did like, uh, paraphrased it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's supposed, I'm, I'm, it's supposed to be I a know, statement. If I was a jury member, yeah. I'd want to know exactly what that person said, you know? Exactly. It's even though you're 17, you're still considered a minor or a child. Yeah. Like you're you're old enough where you know they they should have just brought you down to the police station and, and had you talk to a detective directly at that point. Yeah, exactly. Because that's kind of weird to go. I mean, I, I get their point. If you're seven years old, you go to a what they would perceive as a comfortable environment with fluffy bunnies on the wall, but. For a seventeen-year-old, no, that's that just makes you even more weirded out. So yeah, I was super weirded out, and they didn't even—they were like, "Oh, we are filming this," and they they had the camera behind some like two-way glass, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Why have you put the camera there? You've told me it's here. What do you think I'm going to forget in five minutes? Because I'm six, yeah. you know." I was just like so insulted by the whole thing, but I, you know, I mean, I made it through it enough anyway um and my mom had to go and give statements and my you know, other siblings had to give statements one of my siblings decided not to they, they had to send special police officers to interview my younger siblings and they're you know half his children that's crazy isn't it it was just it was a really really hard time for everyone in my family really difficult and i felt like it was all my fault because if I hadn't said anything, we wouldn't be doing this now, you know. But but you realize now that you absolutely did the right thing, and a hundred percent, yeah. And right. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, no problem. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll do it in order. No so problem. Yeah. We did this. We did the statements and, and all that stuff, and they typed it off, and I said, you know, yeah, whatever, Just, yeah, that's fine. It's got, you know as many relevant points as in it as I as a 17 year old girl in my infinite wisdom have decided that you need and uh, <laughs> and then we had to go to court we didn't get a court date until I was 19 and a half a year and a half later yeah easily a year and a half later if not more I've been living on my own for my I left the house and moved out as soon as I could as soon as I finished college I was like see ya and uh, suddenly you know we got this court date and it was months away it was months and months away it was December so 
you know, maybe we got the court date in September or something. It was long enough away that I thought, okay, that's fine. I'll deal with it. And then all of a sudden it was in two weeks. And I went to bed one night with 100% clear skin. Mm-hmm. And I woke up the next morning and I had psoriasis covering 70% of my body but... from the stress. I still have psoriasis now, 10 years later. I still have psoriasis on my arms, on my knees. Just uh, Obviously, it's genetic, um, but it's triggered by uh, stress or trauma. Isn't that crazy how your body responds that way? Yeah. Because I... I think... I think you have to be two people when that's happening at home. You have to be two people because you have to be this person at home that's just making it minute by minute. And then when you go to school, you have to be a totally different person and everything's fine. And I read a book by Stephen King called, I think it's called Lisey's Story. He describes this this woman, and I can't remember the plot of the book, but he describes this woman, she's repressed memories and she's put them behind a purple curtain in her mind. I feel like I did that a lot. I just put somewhere, just put it in a box and put it away, and that was fine. And I did this so much, and this court was coming up. I was going to have to go, and I was going to be, I was going to be cross-examined as well. Uh, and I knew that, and I just put it all in a box and forgot about it. And in my mind, because I had so much practice of being these two people, that it was fine, and I just got on with it. You know, it's going to happen, but I'm fine. You know. Because I wasn't dealing with it mentally, I think my body just went, "Ah, uh, yeah, yeah." They we don't... need to we need to react to this in some way, and this is what you get. Yeah. You know, it's called bottling it up for a reason. <laughs> it's you're, you're building up the pressure, <laughs> yeah. you're building it up, and you've come out. You've said this. Your your siblings have testified or, or given statements. Yeah. So does he? He, he goes to court. A year, yeah. a year and a half, two years later. Yeah. How does it go down for him? Uh, it well, they they said it was going to take a week in court, and it actually only took two days mm-hmm. for us all to give, uh, you know, to to be uh, to testify yeah. in court and uh, be cross examined by the, you know, the defense. And the defense was asking; she was quite nice and. You know, and everything, and then no, sorry, the prosecutor was really nice to me. Yeah. And then the defense lawyer said, "You got in trouble at home because you had a party while your parents were away, and you made up this story to shift the attention." And I was like, "What? I made up, you know, what five? To six, six years of abuse, I made it up to get out of being in trouble for having a party, which I was still in trouble for. You know, I didn't get away with it. Yeah. So one incident is now debunking your entire story, according yeah, to Yeah, yeah. Even though... That's, that's, what, that, that's what he was trying... That's, I mean, that just goes to show how desperate they were yeah. <laughs> to try and discredit at least some of us, you know? So they weren't able to, correct? <laughs> no, no, they weren't. They okay. weren't. And uh, I'm not, I've destroyed all of the, I had a, a ritual burning of all of the documents from it. So I can't, I can't tell you exactly what he was charged with or what he was convicted with. Um, I know that he got um, convicted of all the charges brought against him that related to me. Mm-hmm. So 
I know I can remember that, but I don't know. I tried not to uh, look at the stuff that related to my other family members because it was it was too hurtful. But he ended up getting I can't remember how many. I think he got twenty three years in jail, and he was old by this time. Uh, I think he's probably getting on for sixty now. As far as I know, yeah. that he's not died. Because um, I did hear that he had emphysema. So he he might be be dead already, or he's probably going to die in prison. Yeah, he's probably going to die in prison because, like I said, that was only 10 years ago. Um, I mean, even if he... I don't even know how it works here, like if he get out on good behavior, but they're not going to let a pedophile out on good behavior, are they, really? No. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, uh, emphysema, he's probably dead. I hope so, anyway. Yeah, that would Um, would be best case scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but something I did find out later was that at the time he was, because he was kept in prison as well, he wasn't let out on bail between charges and trial, he was kept in prison. And I found out much later that at the time that he got arrested, he was living with a woman and a four-year-old girl. So that makes it worth it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, to go through all that when I could have just left it you know it was over I, I could have done nothing and uh, it wouldn't have actually changed anything for me but I might I may have saved that little girl from suffering as well you, you yeah. absolutely did because he he sounds like he's a repeat offender he sounds like he, he would have done the same thing if if he hadn't already so Mm. If nothing else, you you stopped it, if not prevented it altogether. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. It's that's a terrible, terrible fucking story. I mean, oh, you don't have to be sorry. <laughs> I know, I know. My my <laughs> feeling sorry for you is not gonna change anything, but that's. It's, it's... Do you remember when you said on that podcast, oh, I hate it when I uh, tell people about my brother and they go, oh, sorry for your loss. I know. And, and you go, oh, I hate it when people say that. I know. And there I do. I just did it. And um, <laughs> I, I I just heard so many different stories now and they're all terrible, you know, but they they show like you're you're sitting here, you're 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 laughing. You can make a joke. You're you're not. Uh, I'm, I am 100 percent fine yeah. now. You're not I mean, I'll probably, I'll probably have some nightmares over the next week, but yeah. I haven't had any mm-hmm. uh, any after effects of it for at least five years now. Yeah. It's incredible to me that you can be who you are now with with this that's happened. And I share tidbits about my life here and there. And, and the reason why I do it is because people probably look at me and think, you're a well-to-do guy. You you have your your shit together. You have a great podcast. You probably had a good life, and I, I like to say no, I I didn't. I I had just as much of a shitty life as anyone else, <laughs> and I don't let I don't try to let that define me. So no, no, it doesn't, it, and it shouldn't. And I'm glad that it doesn't yeah. as well. For, for, I know it does for some people. I was watching this documentary today, and uh, and there was this wo- a woman, and she'd been she'd been in a you know abuse at home, and then she was sent to a a foster home where she was abused as well by a foster parent and she ended up being a heroin addict booker in Amsterdam mm-hmm. and I'm thinking Jesus Christ thank thank God that that didn't happen to me because 
that's terrible. I mean, but you, you know, you, you hear these stories and, and the ways that it's affected some people, and I am just so thankful that I was able to keep my shit together as much as as much as possible. You can say you're a stronger person. You can say that you you endured it and you're able to overcome. But I, I'm not going to say that somebody that it destroys them that they're a weak person. It's just just everyone's going to respond or or take it in a different way. And yeah. we can only hope that they have people to support them and we can only hope that they can overcome it. But if you don't have any support, if you don't have anyone to help you, I, I, don't, I don't blame somebody that goes on to just become a, a, a heroin junkie or something like that because of this, yeah. you know, it's, it's not... I don't give them a pass. I mean, everybody has choices that they make, but at the same time, I do not think that they're any less of a person because of it. No, yeah. no, but I just, I feel, I feel so bad for, you know, some people that, you know, go through similar things and just don't make it out mm -hmm. and because, and, and the, the way I feel definitely in the UK is there is not enough, there's not enough support for people because after after the trial I didn't do anything for three years and mm -hmm. did nothing stayed at home and did nothing because I was I was just so broken down and it took it took a long time to get myself back up but I was too at that time I was too ashamed to ask for help as well because I still felt like I still felt like I'd put my family through this enormous ordeal that the, that the you know, really didn't have to go through. Yeah, I know. And that's that's the weird shame and the weird, uh, the inconvenience that you feel you're putting on others when yeah. you've been victimized so horribly. And yeah, and if, if nothing else, I hope when people hear this, they understand that they will, they will feel an inconvenience to others when they've been victimized. And they hopefully we'll get past that feeling that that shame that whatever and just do the right thing and tell somebody because that's the only way it seems to stop is when you finally put a stop to it yourself because yeah you know i hope that somebody might listen to this and something's happened if something's happened to them similar even if it's years later that they realize that they can still go to the police Mm -hmm. And still, and still sorted out because, like I said about, you know, finding out that he was living in a house with a young child made it so worth it immediately. Yeah. And you, you can go, and you know, it might be tried as a historical crime. It might be difficult um, to dredge up the past and stuff. But if you, if you wanted, if you wanted to do it, you can, you can do it. Absolutely. I hope that whoever his girlfriend was at the time really had her eyes open to to that to what was going on and and asked her daughter you know did anything happen i mean a four-year-old only has so much you know cognitive skills but hopefully she was able to see it for truth and not be in denial you know yeah yeah definitely but, just, i mean it's, it's just crazy that there that there's people like that in the world you know and it's even crazier to to know that you know, you know, in the UK, it's one in four girls are sexually abused. I I believe it. I mean, people, there's there's this whole argument about 
rape culture and how it's non-existent and people say look at you know the the middle east or look at africa where you know everyone's getting raped and then you gotta and then you look at america and, or the uk and you say see it's not it's not that bad yet for most of my life every single female i ever talked to every single one of them had a story of sexual abuse when i hear one in four Sometimes I think that number might not be great enough. I, I think it might you be. You might enough. be right. You know, I don't get in the whole argument of rape culture. I just look at it as every single female I know has a story, even my wife, even my sister. So I can't say that it doesn't exist. And most of them never reported it. Most of them are too afraid, you know, too overcome with, I don't want to screw up somebody else's life. I don't want to share this. I just want it in the past. So it, it happens, and it happens a lot more than, than we ever admit that it does. Well, you have a, a great night, and thank you so yeah. much again for thank coming Thank you, on. thank you. All right. I'll talk to you I'll soon. See you later. Okay. I am very appreciative of both of my guests and... Because of the trauma that Erin endured, she is unable to conceive children now, but she met the love of her life and her husband and has been happily married for many, many years. Hearing her talk, you can tell that she is doing very well and is improving every day.
$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earned from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. 